Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the exultant Eddie Matthews. Eddie, how are you feeling after that win yesterday? Pretty good. Speaking of pods, talk about the Padres last night. Um, the key metaphor that is uh, on the front page of the local newspaper today is dragon slayers. I don't know if this was... Um, in reference to a specific like interview or article or something, but it just became parroted all over the place last night. It's like, we're, we slayed the dragon up north, you know, up the five. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was funny. So are you like fully on board? You are now a Padres fan. I will say for the fans out there, he was paying attention pretty much all year and he has lived in San Diego for quite some time. So I was uh, open to, to letting him into the fold. But uh, here's, you know, we'll here's, have to hear here's, objections. Here's my view on it. Um, so yeah, 100%. I'm a bandwagon fan. I'll just own that up front. But my view on anything San Diego is uh, we need all the help we can get. We're not going to turn anyone away. You know what I'm saying? So no doubt. I feel like it's about the levels of loyalty. If you're just going to show up and then uh, fair weather away. But I think you've shown a commitment to the the city of San Diego. So I think in my mind. This is a valid bandwagoning. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I'm all in on San Diego, and I love San Diego more than I love the Padres, but the Padres are good for San Diego, and people are really excited about this team. And so I'm also really in support of the Padres. Plus, this particular Padres team is kick-ass. They're fun to watch. They are fun to watch. That's, I feel like that's sometimes overlooked. Like There are teams that are good in all sports that are just not entertaining. <laughs> which is kind of a weird paradox because it's meant to be entertainment. But I think the Padres are the exact opposite of that. Whether they win or lose, they do it in a very exciting and uh, stressful fashion. I just love that the Padres, this era of the Padres, um, has power hitters who are flashy and have swagger. And that to me is great to see because the Padres that we grew up with were the team that was always a small market that would never spend any money that would just try to eke a one or two run lead out for eight innings and hand the ball to Trevor Hoffman and have him bring it home. That was the only type of game they won. You know, it was small ball, but it wasn't really like the Billy It was like money ball. Yeah, it was like money yeah. ball, but without analytics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they weren't fun to watch. Every time they had some, you know, homegrown talent that uh, became really good, you know, I'm thinking like Adrian Gonzalez, which wasn't all the time, but, you know, when we had these guys, then they would trade them off at, at their peak. And it was so it's just like demoralizing because they weren't a team that was really like super committed to their farm system and then keeping those guys. They were a team that would that was committed to their farm system to the extent that they could then have some assets to trade away to then, I don't know, bring in the next generation. But it was like, it was always the next generation. It was never like investing in now, you know? It's, it was one of those, you're always two years away from being two years away situations where <laughs> you pretty much have to hit on like three or four guys in a row to have a chance because you're, gambling any talent you have in the moment to say, okay, we have these five project prospects we believe in that all might be at their peak in five years. 
And so we're going to just keep accumulating people who might hit five years from now, which is a really difficult way to, to go about it, especially for fans who are going into seasons knowing that there was the, is absolutely no chance at getting into the playoffs, much less winning a title. So it's been fun just having them be competitive the last few years, but having them actually take down the Dodgers in the playoffs is, is the culmination of sort of the San Diego Padres revival. That's awesome. That's awesome to watch. Um, I think that uh, there's this GM named AJ Preller who yeah. came in a few years ago and just, I think just like changed the culture, you know? So he went out and spent what, $300 million on Manny Machado. And he's been worth it. Manny Machado, special shout out, has been amazing. Everything you could have hoped for. He's been great. And then he spent another like $320 million on Tatis, RIP. Mm -hmm. And then traded for (laughs) Soto. And yeah. And then traded for Soto and then traded for Josh Hader. Both of those Mm -hmm. guys were huge last night in the game four clinching victory. Gave Joe Musgrove his bag too. You can't, yeah. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Signed uh, Joe Musgrove, who's a hometown hero. He went to Grossmont High over in uh, La Mesa. So. Yeah, I mean, you can you can spin, you can complain about some of the decisions that they've made, like any GM, like nothing's going to be perfect, but you can't complain right. with the, they're actually trying to win. Like they're spending money to win. It's not about just investing in the team, about making more money down the line. They actually seem like they want to win and it's nice to see that paid off. Totally. Um, so I'm stoked uh, for this coming week. Um, so now the Padres are in the National League Championship Series against the Phillies. Yeah. So they're facing, they're facing the only team in the National League that has a lower seed than them. So they have home field advantage, which is dope. I mean, I don't know how interested our fans are in baseball, so we we can switch over to the regular topic in a second. But I do think this is like what makes baseball still fun to watch is the playoffs because regular season is just so long and the disparities in team wealth are so great that you're never really going to have a Padres team finish ahead of a Dodgers team at this day and age in the regular season. Yeah. But then that's why the playoffs are so amazing because it doesn't matter how many wins you have. doesn't matter, you know, the ERA of your pitchers. You just need to win a few games, get hot at the right time. And that's, that's the, the fun of the, the baseball playoffs. Totally. feels like every pitch matters. Yeah. So, yeah, all that to say, San Diego is just on a high right now. And uh, it's been a while since – it's uh, felt this way for a sports related anything here. So it's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, hopefully we'll have an update with uh, Padres going to the, the World Series in a couple of weeks. It would just be, yeah, it'd be unreal. That'd be cool. Uh, what This is kind of a, a, a sports podcast today. It is. And we thought we'd pair like one very happy sort of, uh, I think, pretty much unabashedly good event, at least in our eyes, to some of the negative stuff going around with uh, the World Cup and sort of the discussions on sports watching in Qatar and some of the buildup to what is going to happen. I think we still want to do like a World Cup preview that's just about the teams, but I think we also wanted to acknowledge some of the negative stuff going on. What's, what's the purpose of holding the World Cup in a place like Qatar? What are the negatives and the positives? And yeah, talk about all that all that great stuff that happens when you hold a world uh, event in a authoritarian dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know much about Qatar, but from what I've learned in this process, 
it's a strange it's a country that's hard to pin down you know yeah i feel yeah i mean it's it's an interesting place it's sort of you know reminiscent of and, some of the other middle eastern authoritarian dictatorships but is its own flavor of that and very top down kind of systematically repressive in a way that some of the other ones aren't um, and because it's yeah. very small, so it's easy to police, easy to kind of control and micromanage uh, because of the population is also not that not that large. Yeah, totally. Um, how much, uh, how many people live in Guitar, roughly? Do we know? Okay, I'm going to be dumb and guess before you look it up. I think there's only like 5 million. I think they have like 2 million migrants at any one time as well. Uh, but let's see if that's anywhere close. Uh, it says that the 2020 census was 2.8 million. Ah, see, not so even so. Even smaller. Yeah, so with like around five million with with immigrants at the time. Yeah, I mean that's really small, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. and it's very, um, like tightly bound. Like the populations are very dense in urban areas because it's the desert. So you don't really have sure. a lot of people just living out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so it is these tight, kind of heavily contested spaces where the government has eyes on you at all times and can really restrict anything that they want to restrict um so it's a it's a you know authoritarian dictatorship in the full sense of of the conception um and so we can give a little bit of background here i don't think we're gonna go too much into the background more about just things going on now but the world cup was awarded i think like 10 years ago now so it, it was actually awarded to qatar the way that they do world cup awards is usually two at a time a long time in, in the past and so they awarded this one along with the last world cup um, like a decade ago, and it was found to have been 100% linked to corruption. The, the people, there were arrests made because it's in Qatar, but it's still going on. There were a point in time, a few years back, where it looked like they may be trying to move it, but then FIFA was like, actually, you know, uh, we want we want our money, uh, and everyone hates us anyway, so why do we care? Um, what are you going to do, go play like American football? I don't think so. We don't have the pads. Um, and so I think that's like the, the great irony of the World Cup in particular being held in a place like this that's so restrictive and non-inclusive is that it's meant, the reason it's so popular and so big is because soccer is, you know, the world's game. It is meant to be, you know, the great equalizer. You can come from anywhere, start from anywhere. And as long as you can kick the ball and you can see the field, you can compete, you can train, you can practice. Um and this is just the exact antithesis of that. The fact that Qatar is using this to kind of promote its own identity. And really, I think the, the main thing we're gonna talk about is sports washing, like kind of what it is and what the effects are, what do we know about it? Um, but it's just sad to have to go into a World Cup thinking about things that aren't just fun, entertainment, inclusion, the things that a World Cup should really be about. Um, and the fact that it's even taking away from that at all is obviously not the, the worst thing. There are, you know, actual deaths and, you know, repression against LGBTQ populations and those sorts of things. But it's really just, it's just a, re- just a huge bummer. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, just real quick in terms of uh, geography, uh, Qatar borders Saudi Arabia. It's uh, essentially a peninsula on the Persian Gulf and it neighbors uh, United Arab Emirates as well across the Persian Gulf from Iran. So that's kind of the, the region it's in. It is very It's small. also like pronounced Qatar, really. 
but everyone says Qatar, yeah. and it just if you pronounce it Qatar, people just think you're a douchebag. So we're gonna go with Qatar, but acknowledging that that's not correct. <laughs> Right. I called it Cutter for like the first year, knowing that was correct. And I guess people thought I was a douchebag. So I started that's, that's, calling that's it Qatar. Every single time I've ever said it, people are like that. They just look at you like, you son of a... <laughs> but who do you think you are? <laughs> what do you use terms like joie de vivre too? Um, yeah. So why don't we start with sports washing? What does that term mean? So it's sort of, I think, made up. So we we taking, we're just drawing from a couple Guardian articles that the Guardian, I think, has been the best outlet in terms of kind of bringing a lot of this to light. They've been writing about the Qatar World Cup for, oh, like, since it was awarded to Qatar about some of the stuff that's been going on, migrant deaths, NCLGBTQ, and just of, as of, I think, yesterday or the day before, a bunch of new restrictions on what can and cannot be filmed and reported on by journalists who will be attending uh, the World Cup. Um, and so we, we're drawing from a few articles there, but sports washing more generally is a relatively new term. It comes from like the advertising fields where it's, it's using kind of large events or using prowess in something like sports to get people to, in, the, in its kind of initial conception, get people to forget about some of the negative things you're doing. So in, in the most kind of a centralist version of sports washing, it would be you know, either buying a soccer club or hosting an event that people are going to enjoy and want to watch. And then there's some sort of conception that because you're hosting that event, you know, they'll maybe overlook your human rights record or overlook some of the atrocities you've committed because people love sports. Um, and I think that has become pretty popular in recent years. It's become sort of a buzzword that I think in my own opinion doesn't, isn't nearly as broad or as applicable to most situations as people use it. Um, there hasn't actually been a lot of research on the actual effects of sports washing. And I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced and we can talk about some of the, the work we're looking into and some of the differences between different types of sports washing. Um, but you just wanna talk about the second article as well, the sort of hard power opinion article, which was interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we could get into that. Well, just for a little bit of context too, and we'll link both these articles in the show notes, as they say in the business. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Qatar has had a recent crackdown on the, so if you want to cover the World Cup as a, you know, international media organization, you have to apply for a permit from the Supreme Committee, which is there, so 1984. <laughs> there a lack of awareness. I feel like if, if you're in charge of a dictatorship, you need to be like really sophisticated and be like, oh, the you know, the inclusive niceties committee yeah. for like, <laughs> yeah. make it an acronym. Like that's, what you, acronym that's how you that know no that they just, say yeah. Or, yeah. that's how you know they just don't care. They're just like, just call the, it the Supreme Committee. We're not even going to try the, to have it. Yeah. The I-A-M-C-P-W, you know, <laughs> that's yeah, what it The Sauron's Eye Committee. It's <laughs> out of control. Oh, jeez. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, Honestly, dude, I don't know what BBC and these other media outlets are complaining about stringent policies. They are now allowing gay fans to openly display affection, okay, during the World Cup. What, what's more tolerant than that? Anytime you have to you have to start a sentence with like, we're now allowing, it means you messed up somewhere <laughs> yeah. along the lines and people got mad at you. 
Um, so, and no, it's pretty crazy, man. The way that these contracts are written, it's like you basically, okay. So they recently removed a rule. This is from the Qatar world cup accused article, the guardian, um, including removing a rule that said they must acknowledge and agree. They will not produce reports that may be inappropriate or offensive to the Qatari culture, Islamic principles. And that's and, somebody, somebody in the article said that it's just like purposely vague. It's meant to stifle discussion. Right? Sure. If you, if you can just, then it's a common, you know, authoritarian tactic. Just make laws that are so broadly applicable yeah. that people are just unaware of what actually qualifies and what doesn't. And in the end, that's because everything could qualify if they wanted to, right? Yeah. Because these people are cowards. Yeah. Uh, places where filming is not allowed under the permit are residential properties, private businesses, and industrial zones, or government, educational, yeah, sure. health, and religious buildings. What's you left? To be fair, I don't actually want to watch a bunch of industrial zones filmed, but the rest of those, I feel like uh, it's pretty messed up. They're Jeez like, yeah, you can Louise. basically film, if you, your camera strays from the soccer ball at any moment in time, even just like kiss cam in the crowd, nah, -uh, you're done mm. in jail. Mm. Including but not limited to houses, apartment complexes, accommodation sites. I love the including but not, but limited, not limited to. <laughs> They're like, shit, can we think of any other places? They're like, just but not limited to. <laughs> yeah. How about, um, hmm, can they film in um, uh, tax accountant offices? Yeah, dude. Um, it's bad. So... Yeah. And we so how would, how would you interpret sports washing in this context? Like what would, from a kind of essentialist conception of sports washing, what would the kind of worst case scenario be? If sports washing worked, like what would we expect to happen from hosting the World Cup in Qatar? Laundromats. That's what they didn't include. <laughs> laundromats. I was going to be so much sick footage. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually because um, there's no laundromats in Qatar because everything's so hot that you just immediately dry off. After you do your laundry. There's no dryers. There's washing machines. Yeah. You can't even wash anything because it evaporates too quickly. So they're just like, yeah, screw that. It's not a, it's not a problem. Uh, what do I expect from sports washing? Um, I mean, I think it's kind of like the, it's, I think it essentially veils any human rights abuses in an effective way. If it's, if it's done correctly, like we did in the old days, you know? <laughs> um, so it's, it's Russia hosting Olympics and World Cups and us not thinking about how they'll like jail um, gay people. Well, we're thinking about, wow, like, did you see that Harry Kane goal? You know, mm -hmm. I think, so I think it's just like through, I guess one way to, quantify it would be like what if you were to to take the amount of articles of any topic on russia in the world cup year and compare them to like several years before in a in a pretty neutral site let's say like bbc how many of the what percentage of those articles are going to be like is the kremlin going to view as negative about corruption about uh you know crimea about you know, overstepping all these kind of things, like, and then versus a World Cup year, how many of those articles are just going to be celebrating, you know, England going to the semis or, you know, whatever, but positive um, articles, for lack of a better term. So I imagine that ratio, in terms of international media, 
um, is heavily skewed in the event of the World Cup or, or Olympics or one of these events towards um, positive coverage, right? Because it's just sports. It's kind of this like neutral entity. Yeah, no, I think that's that's sort of how people view it. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And we can talk about that if we want to, because um, I don't actually think that people, especially with, like this current iteration of the World Cup in Qatar, I think with Russia and China hosting things like the Olympics and the World Cup, I think there's more of an argument to be made that it might kind of distract people because people are already talking and already very aware of what's going on in China and Russia, at least to some extent. Whereas Qatar, I don't think it actually works as well uh, because not a lot of people were talking about Qatar uh, as our inability to even say correctly sort of shows. Um, and now I think pretty much anybody who knows anything about soccer has heard at least a story about how shit things are going in Qatar and how negatively they've treated migrants or LGBTQ populations and that sort of thing. The thing is, I just don't think they care, right? Like the, the Qatar like royal family, like they're not attract, they're not trying to attract like general people. I mean, maybe they're doing some stuff on um, like tourism and things, but I think a lot of it is like companies, if they can show that they can pull off these large scale events and they can be kind of a hub for businesses and these sorts of things, then that's, you know, what they're actually interested in. I don't think oppressive dictatorships care a ton about public opinion <laughs> in certain uh, cases like this one. Um, and so I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's certainly something that is a worry and uh, is only going to make things worse. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue to the second article that you mentioned. Um, it's called Forget Sports Washing. Qatar 2022 is about military might and hard sports power. So the question becomes, if Qatar doesn't have much to gain from this kind of like uh, supplanting negative news coverage with positive sports-related news coverage, because they're not really on the map uh, in international media much beforehand so it's probably just going to even out or even be a net negative you know mm -hmm. then what do they really have to gain from doing this and yeah so potentially maybe attracting some corporations and businesses but um or also yeah i guess we could talk about two things it's like the military strategic point which i didn't know that qatar like has so many different countries kind of military yeah. operations which is interesting mm -hmm. um and then secondly, I think it helps maybe just internally. Um, I don't know, you know, what the uh, politics and the uh, business entrepreneurial community is like in Qatar, but maybe they needed some really big event to convince, um, you know, their government to invest in a hundred new hotels and a new airport and these things that are going to make it easier to, you know, bring in um, foreign companies and like increase the GDP and make their oil more sellable and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that I buy that a lot more, I think from a kind of rationalist perspective of like, why are they doing this? If it has to be some sort of strategic national initiative, I think that's signaling strength um, at least because they're not, I mean, they're not comparing themselves to other countries in the world, I mean, maybe some of them are, but it's, you know, for the countries in that region to be like, look, we have all eyes and attention on us. We are a power in this region. You can't overlook us strategically. I also think there's just a component of like the, a lot of these countries are just run by, you know, megalomaniacs with lots of money. 
and they love soccer like anyone else, which is unfortunate. And so I, they buy soccer teams in Paris and in the UK. And I don't think that it's always like, well, if we buy this team, people will like us more and down the line, it'll increase GDP. I think it's a couple of rich people in a room being like, you know what? It would be sweet to own the soccer team that I watch every Saturday. Uh, and now I <laughs> you know what because I... I have lots of money. <laughs> you, know, you know how much money I have? Someone's like, well, sir, it's like 26 billion at this point. And he's like, yeah. And you know what I fucking love? Soccer, <laughs> Neymar. <laughs> exactly, and they're like, "Oh, you want to own some like local team here?" And they're like, "No, I want PSG or Newcastle or yeah. Manchester City, right?" Yeah, yeah. So I think that, uh, like, I mean, that could be the case too. It's not even that strategic. It's just kind of like the whims of billionaires. Um, yeah, and, that, this and just is for I reference, I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, just for reference, the the Guardian apparently. They said that they have 200 years of like oil reserves basically yeah. at this rate. Well, that's and what I'm saying. So they're just, just, they're like, how fun is it to just sit there and watch oil accumulate? <laughs> they're like, no, yeah, we need yeah. some like fun stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. So they I can mean, operate, they can operate a major European soccer club at a loss. I can't imagine they're like making profit. No, no um, it's, it's not about yeah. that. Yeah. So, geez. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is where there's an opportunity, though. So I think we see these things and we think, oh, sports watching, it's only going to be a net negative. I actually think that if people continue to speak up and we don't let the attention go away from some of these atrocities, it could backfire. Because I actually see it as being, you know, the, if it's the whims of dictators and tyrants, I think put applying pressure in the public sphere, at least in kind of Western countries, where anyone from now on who does business with Qatar it has this stain that it wouldn't have if the country weren't as well known for some of these negative things that it's doing. And so I think instead of seeing it as like a negative, which it obviously is for the things that are happening, I mean, I think a lot of this would have been happening anyways, just outside of the public eye. And so if anything, I think bringing more attention to it and not letting the fact that it's being held in Qatar and how ridiculous that is, and this should be the last time anything like this ever happens with a public sporting event, um, would has you know the potential for positives down the line i don't know if that's overly optimistic but i i do think that it will kind of redound or rebound onto qatar if it's discussed the right way and you don't let people like david beckham get bought off yeah i think that um i mean i like the hopefulness there but also it takes courage from uh powerful people to you know, turn Qatar into a negative example for to dissuade, you know, future totalitarian regimes from sports washing, right? So it takes like, you know, uh, once the, uh, like what if uh, Gareth South, Southgate, is that the manager of England? Yeah, and he's going to get his ass whooped by Team USA day after Thanksgiving, <laughs> mark it down. <laughs> Damn right he is. So let's say like someone like that you know takes a takes a gopro into like a local uh immigrant hostel and just like films and puts it online you know or like that's why they're so stringent obviously on all these uh media requirements for these permits but it i think for this to be a meaningful negative example it has to be um powerful either media outlets or just individuals taking it upon themselves to break these rules and bring attention to how like 
horrific the situation is for migrants in this country, you know? Absolutely. That's why I think, like, I mean, that's fair. That's why I like to, like, encourage people to, if you do have an extra few dollars, like, give money to The Guardian this month. And I think they're the ones that are doing the best work trying to do these exposés and actually talk to people on the ground and get the word out about what's actually happening. I think this is an area where good journalism can can maybe make a difference. Um, And hopefully there'll be enough negative press where dictatorships in the future will think twice before they bribe FIFA officials to, to host the World Cup. What does the BBC have to lose by sending, you know, agreeing, in quotation marks, to these uh, permits, sending their journalists over, and then just covering whatever they want? They're now banned from Qatar forever? <laughs> it's like, who cares, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's why obviously this podcast will get the word out, and we can uh, we can get the ball rolling here. Yeah, um, I'm and really when... bummed. I'm really bummed that when the Supreme <laughs> Committee listens to this podcast, you and I will not be able to visit Qatar. Well, we've already turned down, you know, multiple sponsorship deals. They've tried to recruit us to run podcasts on the World Cup for the the Qatari state government, and we've said, "Nah, yeah. take those millions somewhere else." We, uh, <laughs> this no, is a no, nonprofit. No, no. Can't buy this. Um, can't buy these ponies. <laughs> Um, we accept well, only frontward facing money through Patreon. Otherwise, get out of here. Yeah. What do you what do you make of this? Do you agree with the argument that um our good friend Barney Rone is making that this isn't name. sports washing? This is um what's the term he uses? Hard sports power. So hard power and soft power are the terms from Joseph Nye, who's like a political scientist, that he's relying on hard power is basically just like military might, and so actual like conflict sure. power. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is if if we have to choose one of the kind of rationalist outcomes, I side more with this than I do the traditional kind of public opinion based sports washing narrative. Um, I do think it's more about signaling just strength and relevance than it is about trying to you know get people to visit Qatar. Um, but, I mean, I think maybe it's a bit of column A, column B, and then on some of the column C we talked about of just wanting to have something to do and invest in your country around an event that you and your friends who live in Qatar can host and have parties with uh, David Beckham and other people who come into the country. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of their geopolitical situation it kind of seems like they're playing both sides so this this graph has apparently Qatari has 3,250 Turkish security officers South Korean military specialists it has NATO presence looking after you know nuclear threats Um, its airspace seems to have representation from several countries Uh, there's US Apache helicopters there there's Italian helicopters, there's British, you know, military, a couple hundred officers. So uh, it kind of seems like they, but they're also not like taking a stand against Russia. It seems like they're also friendly with Russia. I don't know. So do you think that they just have more leverage being kind of this neutral presence to both other totalitarian regimes and to the West or... What do you we can say their... for sure Sorry. that they do not have a dearth of helicopters. That is one thing we know about Qatar. Very helicopter-friendly place. Um, they, yeah, I mean, any 
country in the Middle East that has oil and military might is going to be of strategic interest to all world superpowers and nations because of kind of the fine balance with which that region is uh, managed by everyone involved, especially since a lot of these countries are very top down in their governance strategies. So it's more about you know, negotiating with a particular dictator or uh, cohort of supreme leaders rather than actually um, kind of having to manage public opinion, which is another reason why I don't think they care as much about public opinion. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's a, similar to Saudi Arabia where they're sort of try, had tried to make themselves indispensable to both sides. So you have a backup option if you know the, mm. the West suddenly becomes too irate about human rights abuses or doesn't need oil, um, you can still pawn things off to, to Russia and China um, it's the apolitical strategy of just, you know, realist, realist politics. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that the U.S. kind of allows that to happen because I think it plays into the dictator's hands when you sort of give them an out. Um, but it's the way military operations are run in that region at the moment. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's another area where that's why I like this article a lot is I think at the very least, maybe not just discussing how human rights issues are a problem. Also discussing how the continuation of these policies are enabled by Western governments who, and Western businesses who kind of openly use these governments as allies in the region uh, to carry out strategic, you know, strategic plans and strategic, strategic operations um, that in my mind are rarely ever worth the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I think what is frustrating about, um, situations like this with the 2022 world cup, or frankly, there's like several formula one races that are in, uh, countries that are also not stellar human rights records. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. With suboptimal human rights. Again, don't you just think that those like rulers were just like, wouldn't it be sick if there were really fast cars <laughs> driving everywhere? Yeah, because totally. <laughs> like, all these countries are ruled by men. Yeah, of and course. And men like race cars. <laughs> yeah, like there's no, uh, there's, it's I think the same thing. The UFC sounds, has their own like uh, yeah. UFC headquarters in, in the Middle East as well to hold fights. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that... Um, What's a bummer to me is that these same multinational companies will, in America, in June, be like, yeah, Gay Pride Month, woo! And then (laughs) they'll turn around, and then in September, they'll be like, all right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll make sure not to say anything pro-LGBT while we're in uh, Abu Dhabi or wherever. Of course, yeah. And it's just, um, I mean, it's an obvious point to make and it's, and it's a problem that's been around forever, but it's just like so sad to see it happen at the corporate level. I mean, who cares about the corporate level? They're always just gonna like care about the bottom line. So whatever, that's not gonna go away. But the individuals that you would like for them to take this opportunity to, um, I don't know, take a stand or like do something meaningful. Like the, I don't want to throw a new one under the bus, but let's just well, say I Sebastian Vettel. There's an example. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Then. Well, Sebastian Vettel, who will like, you know, 
in uh for one of these races i can't remember which um like wore like a rainbow colored shirt or something to like support mm-hmm. i think that was the saudi arabia one yeah to support the lgbt community and it's like uh i mean yeah like cool sebastian but what if you sat out the race you know yeah, yeah. because of this what if you refuse to race like that would that would make an impact you know and then just yeah. took interviews while the race was going <laughs> Uh, That'd be amazing. I think that would be much more meaningful, and and also for the long term of his career, I think just be much more. I don't know. I don't even think he scored any points in that race. You know, he's racing for Aston Martin, so it's yeah. not like it's not like it would even that been that big of a sacrifice. He wasn't racing for Ferrari at that time. So I mean, I think that's the problem is that especially Formula One, the entire sport revolves around corporate sponsorships with very unethical companies, right? Oil companies and yeah, yeah. So I just think, but I think there's an opportunity for the World Cup here to, for, well, the opportunity is kind of passed. They're kind of, I mean, we would, like, it would take I even think... more courage, right, to not show up for your first game. Like, no one would ever do that, but that would be super courageous, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, so Denmark, I know, like, people have done stuff on the edges. Certain players from the UK have said they're going to wear rainbow-colored arms. You know, same sort of thing you're talking about. Uh, I don't know if you saw Denmark's uniforms they came out with, but all of their country colors are, like, faded into the background because they said they didn't want to even be seen as participating on soil, which is, you know, not nothing. Okay. And and I don't know if you saw the U.S. That kind of stuff just, like... I don't know if this is uh, the case, but the U.S. seems to have strategically picked the worst jersey design in the history of... U.S. World Cup jerseys. I don't know if it's protest or just just absolutely terrible uh, design, but uh, there's there's something too. Um, but yeah, cool. it's uh, they're unbelievable. It's a uh, yeah, they're so bad. Anyway, that's when we get into the actual discussion of the the game. We can. It's like we can this tie dye one. No, that's honestly would be better. It's like legitimately just like a plain white shirt. Like it just looks like somebody walked on the field with a t-shirt on. Really and it has like a small USA at the top yeah. under the neck. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great, but whatever. Yeah, I um so yeah, it's just sad sad to to watch. Um the you know, we think we make all this progress in the world and in you know, democratic countries and think we're so just like pro human rights, and then it there's just a dollar figure and then once it eclipses that dollar figure it's like all right we'll just put aside all our principles <laughs> absolutely no i think we need to make or support people making the biggest ruckus possible this world cup like, i think it's i mean it's literally the least we can do um but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it yeah i don't even know i mean i think i think if you were there then it would be pretty straightforward on how to make a ruckus you know you just take your cell phone around to every place you can find with just like horrible uh working and living conditions and then just put it on youtube right yeah well i think when people do that i think sharing it and i mean it's won't have an impact on policies at the moment but i think you never know it's uh it's worth a shot better than doing nothing in this case usually i'm against just kind of liking things online, uh, you know, the slacktivism. But I think in this case, it's better than nothing. And I think if we can make it seem like it really backfired for Qatar, then maybe this will be the last time the World Cup is held in 
place, this type of place. Probably not, but maybe. I wouldn't mind uh, somebody interviewing David Beckham and uh, who is the who's the French um, Zinedine, Zinedine Zidane. Zidane? Yeah, and just interviewing them this year and being like, "Fuck you guys!" <laughs> well, is this an invitation to have him on? I would just don't don't show him the, rest of the podcast. <laughs> Maybe we can. If anyone knows David Beckham's number, feel free to pass it along to us. And because uh, basically those those two were pivotal and like paid to make this happen ten years ago. So Zidane was, and Beckham now is promoting it like in real time. Yeah, that's even like shittier. I think that's worse. <laughs> yeah, it's it's arguably worse. Wow. Especially for people who are already rich. Like, if some you know poor immigrant was given ten million dollars, I would be like, okay, well. <laughs> But it's like, yeah. David Beckham, you don't need the money. Like, why, why are you selling? No, these guys just think of themselves as, as brands, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's something, I feel like there's something that, like, breaks in their brains when they get that famous. It's like, well, who, who knew I have that, to do uh, this. It's good for the brand. You know? Who knew that Bender Like Beckham was about bending your uh, moral ambiguity to, to the max? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.